This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, April 29th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. The state of California has for years maintained that in order to raise funds for your nonprofit in the state, you must send California a list of your donors. Notwithstanding the ugly history of states demanding lists of nonprofit donors, the Supreme Court recently heard a challenge to that requirement in the case of Americans for Prosperity Foundation v. Bonta. Paul Sherman of the Institute for Justice comments on the oral argument held this week. Like all states, California regulates charities that solicit contributions within the state. Uh, but like virtually no states, California forces charities to turn over a list of their large contributors to the state. Uh, It did not always do this. Uh, Basically, the way it works is if you're a charity, you have to submit a form to the IRS called Form 990. And attached to that is a document called Schedule B. Schedule B lists your largest contributors. Uh, California used to only require charities to turn in their Form 990 if they wanted to solicit contributions in the state. But starting in 2010, under then-Attorney General Kamala Harris, the state started sending deficiency letters to charities that did not have Schedule Bs. Well, what does that mean for uh, a nonprofit that would like to raise funds in California? And of course, nonprofits raise funds in all states to the extent that they're sending emails to people who live in that state. Yeah. So, I mean, what it fundamentally means is it's a massive intrusion into the privacy of private associations. Uh, You know, one of the things that has happened with this case is a lot of people are viewing it through the lens of campaign finance disclosure because AFP itself is a fairly political organization. But it's important to recognize this is not a requirement that applies only to political nonprofits. This applies to every single nonprofit that is registered in California. So every nonprofit as a condition of raising money, has to disclose the identity of its largest contributors. And this is a concern for a couple reasons. One is that historically, uh, California has done what the trial court judged a shockingly bad job of keeping this information private. Uh, So there's the concern that it will get out to the public and that that might be a basis of retaliation. Uh, But it's also a concern just that you are forced to turn this information over to the government. Uh, You know, what the government is doing here essentially is it's maintaining a database of people's ideological persuasions. And that's something that we should be concerned about. Tell me, how does this relate to NAACP v. Alabama? Right. So NAACP v. Alabama is a case that arose out of the civil rights movement where the state of Alabama wanted to get the identities of contributors to the NAACP as part of a defamation lawsuit related to some advertising that the NAACP had placed. Uh, The Supreme Court held that they could not get that information and that the First Amendment protected privacy of association. NAACP v. Alabama is still perfectly good law. Um, But along the same time, the Supreme Court has diverged when it comes to privacy in the campaign finance realm. And so what happened in this case is you had two lines of precedent. You had the charitable contribution precedent, where the Supreme Court has always applied the highest level of judicial scrutiny. And you had campaign finance precedent, where the court has unfortunately applied a significantly lower level of scrutiny to disclosure. And the Ninth Circuit sided with the campaign finance precedent. 
what we argued at the Institute for Justice in our amicus brief is that this represents the creeping encroachment of this sort of sui generis campaign finance precedent into other areas of First Amendment law. And campaign finance law has always been treated as kind of a world unto itself. It shouldn't be allowed to be the exception that swallows the general rule that when people get together and and do civically minded things like contribute to charity, that they can do that in privacy. And so uh, we're talking about groups that are just 501c3s or the whole range of C insert number here groups. Yeah. So California's policy uh, applies to any group that raises charitable funds uh, on a tax-exempt basis. So uh, that includes uh, 501c3s, but also C4s, C6s, the the other groups. So uh, what do we expect to happen here? If uh, NAACP v. Alabama is still good law and the First Amendment protects the privacy of associations that includes giving money to support causes that you care about. It seems fairly straightforward to me, but what do you think? Well, based on oral arguments, I think it seems pretty clear that uh, Americans for Prosperity and also the Thomas More Law Center, which filed a a companion case, which was consolidated with this, uh, I think they're likely to prevail. And the question is going to be how far the court goes but also what signals some of the individual members of the court are going to send about the issues that are presented in this case. One of the things that I think was noteworthy about the argument was that uh, Justices Gorsuch and uh, Amy Coney Barrett both asked questions that seem to indicate that they have a pretty broad view of privacy of association. Um, And it may be more consistent with the view taken by Justice Thomas, who has long been the most skeptical member of the court on issues of campaign finance disclosure. And anonymous speech. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So this may be a case where we get a much better read on where they stand on these issues. But, you know, the important thing, I, I think, for people to understand about this case, because I, I believe Justice Breyer asked a question about whether this case is just a stalking horse to undermine, uh, undermine campaign finance precedent. The case really has to be understood, I think, in the complete opposite way, uh, which is that uh, the general default rule is that people have this right to privacy. And uh, whatever the court's going to end up doing with campaign finance in the future, it should just apply the default rule that it has historically applied. And again, not allow campaign finance precedent to become the exception that swallows the rule. When we understand the laws governing campaign finance to be, we're trying to give the public a sense of the people who are actively supporting a campaign for office, and yet there are super PACs created in part by your former colleague, Steve Simpson, and that's money that's spent beyond the bounds of a campaign. People can just spend that money and say whatever they want. How should we understand the First Amendment in that context? Well, I I think with disclosure in general, uh, the basic idea, uh, if we're going to have it, is that it should be about the public keeping tabs on what government and government officials are up to or what kind of loyalties government officials might have. But disclosure is not about keeping tabs on the public generally and trying to figure out what political inclinations the public has. And, you know, when I talk to people about this case, I ask them to consider uh, the hypothetical. 
you know, imagine if Schedule B didn't exist and the Trump administration had just invented it out of nowhere and started demanding that left-leaning charities turn over lists of their largest contributors with the promise that they would keep those documents strictly confidential, they would never disclose them to the public. I guarantee you that left-leaning charities would be losing their minds about that, specifically because they do not trust what the government itself will do with that information. And I think in these polarized times, that's a completely legitimate concern. There are members of Congress who, for whatever reason, view spending on issue-oriented stuff. I know IJ files briefs in, in court when they're not directly bringing cases in court. The Cato Institute does the same. Pacific Legal Foundation does the same thing. There seems to be at least an appetite to use this uh, nonprofit giving as an avenue for explicitly chilling the the speech of people who would like to otherwise support those causes. Is that an issue here? Is that a core issue in, in California? Or is that just something we suspect to be the case? Well, you know, there's no evidence in the case that these forms were being used to uh, directly retaliate against these groups. But one of the problems is, you know, California is engaging in the blanket collection of these forms from tens of thousands of charities. And the government may retaliate against groups in ways that are subtle and difficult to connect to those kinds of disclosures. Or they may not retaliate against the group. They may retaliate against the donor. And this is the reason why we have this protection for privacy in the first place. And, you know, there are members of Congress, uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse is one, uh, who talk at great length about exposing these groups, I don't think it's any surprise that elected representatives want to know who is getting involved in politics and who may be working against their policy goals. But again, disclosure is not about keeping tabs on the public. It's supposed to be about keeping tabs on government officials and whether they're fulfill fulfilling their responsibilities to the public. Paul Sherman is a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 